without further ado, let's talk about violations of specific safety requirements here in Ohio. We have had such a creature in Ohio since uh, 1923, believe it or not, when the state amended its constitution to give the Industrial Commission the authority to determine whether or not an injury, a disease, or a death in the workplace was caused by an employer's failure to comply with the safety requirement. And that constitutional provision also provided that if the commission, at that time the board, um, determined that, yes, the safety violation did cause the injury or the disease or the death, then the commission was given the constitutional authority to impose a penalty, and it's, it is a penalty as to the employer, uh, in the amount of not less than 15 nor more than 50% of the maximum compensation for the date of injury. So that's the constitutional provision, and like I say, it's been around since 1923. Sometime thereafter, the Bureau, through its safety department, now known as the Safety and Hygiene Department, drafted a number of safety codes. Each safety code covers a particular industrial process or industry. Uh, if you're a steel mill, uh, the steel mill code, 1-9, applies to you. Uh, if you are a construction company building, uh, building new apartments or working on the ProMedica structure downtown Toledo, uh, you would be, in all probability, subject to the construction code. If you look at the codes, though, uh, there is a code called All Workshops and Factories. It's sort of a catch-all provision. And all of the other specific codes dealing with specific industries are really merely supplemental to the workshops and factories, which means if you're producing tires and you're subject to the rubber and plastic industry code, and if you complied with all of the safety requirements in a particular claim, uh, doesn't necessarily mean you can escape from VSSR liability because you would then also be subject to complying with the provisions and requirements in the workshops and factories code if, in fact, uh, there were additional ones and they were not inconsistent with the requirements in the more specific code dealing with the rubber industry. So the specific codes dealing with specific industries supplement workshops and factories. If you comply with the provisions in the specific code dealing with your particular industry, uh, you may still be viable for a violation of a code in the workshops and factories. If the requirements are inconsistent between, say, the between 5 and 13, 13 trumps 5. 
another important thing that I think you need to remember about all of these codes. There is a grandfather clause in the scope provision of each one of these codes. And that gra grandfather clause reads pretty much identical in each code. And it says that deals with installations and constructions built or contracted prior to the effective date of any requirement is deemed to comply with the present requirement if the installation and construction complied with the requirement in effect at the time of the construction. What does all that mean? It simply means this. If you have a conveyor line in your plant, if you have a mechanical power press uh, installed in your plant, the date of installation, depending on when that date would be, will be the, the uh, point in time when the safety requirements will be examined. And if that piece of equipment, that installation, met the requirements when it was installed, you are not in violation. Even though the requirements uh, when the injury occurred may indicate a violation, uh, you get grandfathered in and uh, not be subject to any liability for a violation of a specific safety requirement. Obviously, it sort of goes without saying, but it's important to note, the grandfather clause does not apply to, to anything other than installations or constructions. So if you have an old tow motor in the plant, or a coil tractor, or a power, power truck of some kind, and you've been uh, utilizing it for years, you do not get the benefit of the, of the grandfather clause. Uh, that piece of equipment, that mo motorized vehicle, must comply with the requirement in effect at the time that the injury occurred. Um, the safety requirements, really, there have been several major revisions and as you can imagine as time goes by they be the, the safety requirements become uh, more numerous and also more uh, restrictive as to employers 1951 1964 1977 and 1986 were the major revisions so if you have a mechanical power press in your plant uh, and it was installed in 1968 you're probably uh, to a much more lenient safety than you are today. So again, it's a, it's a point to remember, and the grandfather clause and the date of installation is very important in, in some of these claims. So, as I indicated, the Constitution, sting VSSR liability, and giving the Industrial Commission the authority to determine whether a, an injury or a, a death or a disease resulted from an employer's violation. That's been in existence since 1923. There has never been any statutory law addressing of specific safety requirements. So what we know is through the case law in Ohio. And the cases started becoming quite numerous in the 60s and 70s. And if you read enough cases and you handle enough of these types of claims, there are certain legal principles that uh, apply and that you need to know 
in order to assess uh, a liability you might have when one of your injured employees files an application. The first issue is that your activity must fall within the coverage of a particular code. Now we talked about construction codes, we talked about the workshops and factories. Uh, the construction code applies only to those employers whose principal business is construction. Collision, excavation, building, repairing of structures. If you're doing such activity but your employer's business uh, is not principally in the construction functioning, you are not subject to the uh, IC3 code for construction. Uh, example is the workshops and factories. IC5, the catch-all code. That applies only to injuries or diseases and deaths occurring in a workshop or factory. And therefore, if you have a situation where an employee is injured outdoors, there is a good chance that IC5 would not apply because the cases have made it pretty clear that a workshop has to be a place with some form of a structural enclosure. So uh, we handled a, a BSSR claim at Bugby and Conkle where an employee was killed while operating a forklift, a heavy-duty forklift, on a construction site. The employer was not involved. The principal business of this employee's employer was not construction. So the IC3 requirement and that code did not apply. Uh, plaintiff's counsel argued that IC5 applied. And uh, that case eventually, after uh, all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court, that case found for the employer because there was no, no workplace, there was no factory. We had an open construction area and unfortunately uh, we employee who died as a result of some malfunction of a forklift. The case illustrates the fact that the activity must fall within the coverage of a particular code. And there are activities and situations that fall within no code. So that's an important principle to remember. The second principle is the specificity requirement. Because this award is deemed a penalty against an employer, the courts have made it clear that the employer must know exactly what its duties are to comply. If the requirement uh, is such that it does not plainly tell the employer what needs to be done to comply, then chances are pretty good that that specific requirement is not specific as the courts have defined them and that employer cannot be held to have violated a specific safety requirement. Uh, the employer must know exactly what it needs to do to comply. There cannot be guesswork or discretion uh, by virtue of the wording of the requirement. The next principle that has developed in the case law in order to be liable for a violation of a specific safety requirement, the employer must have the authority 
to alter and maintain and correct the particular piece of equipment or the particular machinery involved. That is why when you have a temporary employment agency and uh, they one of their employees is assigned to a customer and there is a violation or an alleged violation at the customer, the temporary employ, employment agency is never liable because that agency had no authority, no ability to correct any violation or to alter or amend its customer's equipment. Uh, there's another case that I handled years ago where we represented a Toledo employer who had a job in Columbus, Ohio, and it involved installing uh, windows in a, in a building, and it contracted with a scaffolding company. And the rental agreement, they rented scaffolding from this uh, company in Columbus, the rental agreement prevented our client from erecting the scaffolding or changing it once it was erected or dismantling it. So pretty much the scaffolding company uh, retained the authority to erect the scaffolding and to uh, fix B and then to finally dismantle it. Well, lo and behold, one of our client's employees fell from the scaffolding, sustained serious injuries, and then filed an application alleging a VSSR. And uh, they filed an application against our client being the employer on the basis that because of the rental agreement for the scaffolding, our client had no authority to alter or correct the scaffolding and uh, with that position. So again, the authority to alter or correct the particular machinery or equipment is essential before an employer can be held liable for violating a safety requirement. The next item, proximate cause. An employer can violate a number of specific safety requirements and still not be liable for the penalty uh, provided by the Constitution if any violation did not cause the injury or the, or the death. Uh, there is a requirement that the violation cause the injury. And so if you have somebody working on a, uh, a conveyor line and uh, gets caught in rollers, dual rollers, and uh, gets caught uh, for some reason unrelated to the lack of a guard, uh, even though there was a violation, there is no basis for an additional award uh, simply because there is no showing that the violation caused the injury. So proximate cause is essential before an employer can be held liable. Then there's a doctrine developed over the years about an employee's unilateral negligence. If an employer complies with the safety requirements that apply to it, and an employee unilaterally, without the knowledge of the employer, removes a guard, or tries to uh, short-circuit some safety device, or whatever else you could dream of, and an injury occurs because of that, the employer is not liable. 
The employer did everything it could possibly do, and it was the employee's negligence, oftentimes intentional action, that defeated the safety uh, device and caused the injury. In that situation, there's no VSSR liability. The next principle, failure of a safety device. If, in fact, the employer uh, puts on... Uh, you know, dual control buttons on a press or a siren on a forklift truck or whatever the particular safety device is, and it fails. The employer gets one free strike. If the employer did not have any knowledge of any problem with that safety device and it failed and its failure caused the employee's injury, the employer will not be held liable for VSSR liability. If it happens a second time, watch out, because uh, at that point, the courts have indicated the employer either knew or should have known, and the employer is not immune from that second failure of the safety device. So if you've got, if you've got a safety device uh, that's not working and you know it, your employer needs to fix it and put, uh, put an effective device on. As I indicated, although it's additional compensation for the claimant or the widow, uh, a VSSR is really in the nature of a penalty as to the employer. And because of that, and this is very important, any, any question, any doubts as to the interpretation of the specific requirement and the application of the requirement to the facts of the claim must be resolved in the employer's favor. That's just the, that's the exact opposite of how the underlying claim is determined by the commission. In the underlying workers' compensation claim in Ohio, uh, the employee gets all the doubts resolved in the employee's favor. With the VSSR, remember, the employer is sort of holding the cards, and the employee must really be able to prove all the elements of the claim. And if there are doubts in the interpretation or the application of that requirement to the facts, uh, the case law makes it clear that those doubts are resolved in favor of the employer. Okay. Let's assume that uh, the commission finds a violation and finds that that violation caused the injury. Uh, again, 15 to 50 percent of the maximum weekly compensation. Uh, the commission uh, makes that decision by looking at how serious the injury was, the seriousness of the violation, the safety record of the employer. The word maximum is very important. Uh, a 2017 injury carries a maximum rate of temporary total wage loss and permanent total compensation of $902. So whether you're a state fund employer or self-insured employer, that is the, the number that the 15 and 50 percent is based on. Another thing with a state fund employer, as you know, a claim remains in your experience for a limited period of time, after which it will have no economic impact on your comp costs. That's not the case with the VSSR award. A VSSR award is, is the employer's liability, 
all employers pay it directly, and it stays with the claim for the life of that claim. So if you have a permanent total disability situation, if you have a death claim, uh, you're going to be paying, your employer is going to be paying uh, significant dollars over the course of that claim based solely on the VSSR award. And I have seen in a number of cases where the VSSR award is significantly greater than the TT award or the PTD award. Again, because it's based on the maximum weekly compensation uh, on the date of injury and not on the employee's AWW. In 1986, for the very first time, the Ohio General Assembly enacted a statute dealing with dealing with uh, VSSR liability. The statute indicates that no employer shall violate a specific safety requirement. Has it does, says nothing about that violation causing an injury. It merely gives the commission the authority to enforce specific safety requirements. And so in the course of the processing of a VSSR application, if the commission finds a violation, it can order the employer to correct it. If the employer fails to correct it, the employer is then found to have made a second violation because the failure to correct equals a violation. And if an employer has two violations within 24 months, it is subject to a civil penalty payable to the Bureau in the sum of $50,000, up to $50,000 for each violation. And in determining the amount of the fine, uh, the Commission looks at such things as the size of the employer, its earnings, uh, its assets, the number of employees it has. And so very expensive. The Commission has not, as far as I know, really processed many of these, but the laws on the books, if the violations occur at two different work locations, then they must be the same. If the two violations occur at the same workplace, then it doesn't matter what the violations were. Any two will do and any two will subject that employer to additional liability. And then finally, the procedures. A claimant has two years in which to file a VSSR application. IC-8-9 is what they're, what they're called. After two years, a claimant can amend that application but what the claimant cannot do is set forth any new alleged violations. Amendments can only clarify what's already been filed within the two-year statute. Once it's filed, it is then processed. The employer will get a phone call from a bureau investigator, or if the employer is represented, the investigator will deal with the counsel of the employer and an on-site investigation is then set up and the investigator will want all relevant documentation, will also want to come out to the location, take photographs and measurements, perhaps talk with witnesses if the employer uh, so chooses to make those witnesses available. 
my process is as follows. You'll get a letter from the Bureau telling you, send us this information. It's sort of like a checklist. Uh, I never supply that information until the on-site investigation. And the reason I don't is because I do not want the investigator to be talking to the claimant and the claimant's counsel having possession of all of the documentation of the employer. If, in fact, the affidavit of the claimant is taken, I'd rather have the claimant uh, give his own story without assistance of documentation in a meeting with the investigator. So that's, that's how I handle it. I have the documents. I meet the investigator at the plant. We go over the documents, and I usually have the safety director or a, perhaps even a supervisor who is knowledgeable about the equipment uh, act as our host and answer any questions the investigator may have. But I do not make any witnesses available at that time. Rather, what I do is I go to a pre-hearing conference and request a record hearing. And a record hearing then allows the requester uh, of the record hearing to produce new evidence. And that allows uh, the employer then to produce live testimony by any witnesses it so chooses and to file additional documentation if such documentation surfaces later. If there's any type of third-party action pending, the VSSR will be held in abeyance if the parties agree. A decision is rendered on the VSSR, and then there's a rehearing provision. You have to file for a rehearing within 30 days to preserve your right to challenge any commission order, and that challenge is through mandamus. Settlement, it's a rather simple topic, but not necessarily so. The commission, uh, you can settle a VSSR at any time. The commission wants them settled prior to the merit hearing. And settlements are approved by the commission. And but for one instance, I've never had a settlement not approved. And in that one instance, there is litigation pending now in Columbus challenging the commission's authority to review and either approve or disapprove a settlement of a VSSR, simply because there is no statutory authority for the commission to do that. I think we're done. Thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you learned a few things. So hopefully if you've got any questions or want to talk further, just give me a call or uh, shoot me an email or something if you've got a particular situation. But uh, these can get expensive. And generally when you have a serious injury or a death, and there's some piece of equipment involved. Some piece of machinery. Uh, chances are pretty good that if the claimant is represented by counsel, uh, there will be filed a, an application alleging that the employer violated a specific safety requirement. Uh, it's just the way of the world now. And um, you need to look at it closely because... It gets expensive, but again, everything with the VSSR must be resolved in, in the employer's favor uh, when there's questions. So keep that in mind in defending these. Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon.